You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. Growing up, we had this Persian cat, and his name was Rocky on account of he looked like he had his face punched in because it was totally and completely flat. And with that, being Persian came with a lot of natural inherent issues. And so one of them, flat face. And so he was just snotty all the time. He couldn't breathe. He was very cute, except when he wasn't. And when he wasn't, it was just this gross thing that would happen all the time. But also Persian cats have no natural defense mechanisms. They don't have any natural fear of predators. They are very much groomed to be pretty and be inside. And so if he ever got out, it was a really big deal because he would just wander into the mouth of a neighboring dog or predator of some sort. And so when he got out, it became really important to go chase him down. And so you'd get out and then I would go out to try to catch him and bring him back in. And he would run as fast as his tiny little purebred legs could carry him. The problem is he has a flat face. And so because of that, he has some asthma and would run out of breath really easily. And so he would run for, I'd say, 20 or 30 feet and then just get exhausted and start doing this like (laughs) thing. But he didn't want to get caught. And so he would run as fast as he could. And then when his little asthma kicked in, he would drop to the ground and crouch as low as he could and just stay still going, (laughs) assuming that he wouldn't be seen, which, of course, was the exact moment that I caught him. And I don't believe he ever got more than 30 feet away from me because he just couldn't go that far and our grass wasn't that tall. And also he was this blue gray color, which is not good natural camouflage. And so for Rocky, he was trying to get away. He wanted to escape and he thought his only option was to hide. The problem was he wasn't really that well hidden. It's kind of like playing hide and go seek with children, little children. They're all really bad at hide and seek because they just close their eyes or stand really close to being next to a wall, kinda, sorta, and you have to be a really good actor, which I'm not. In fact, I'm the opposite of that. Internally, I am just a natural critic and contains the attributes of one who may be considered a jerk at times. And so my initial thought is, I see you, (laughs) you're right there, find a better hiding place. But then they're children and you can't say things like that to children, so you have to go, oh no, where are you? And then do this whole charade thing that happens. And it's just kind of awkward and weird. And that is what's going on at the church in Sardis. The church in Sardis is trying to hide in plain sight. Unfortunately, Jesus isn't playing games. And he sees them for exactly who they are and is about to call them out for it. And so we need to look at this example that we're about to see in the church in the city of Sardis. And recognize how a church can look alive, but in essence be hiding in plain sight. And to be very careful that we are constantly taking our spiritual temperature. Constantly looking at who we are from the inside out and making sure that our outward appearances match our inward. Making sure that our reputation matches our reality. Making sure that we're not trying to hide things that aren't like Christ by doing our best job of presenting things that look very Christian. And so we're going to be in the book of Revelation as we have been for the last several weeks and as we will be for the next several months. And we're going to look at chapter three, verses one through six, as Jesus writes this letter to the church at Sardis. And it says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. 
You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, this is a unique letter that we're going to be talking about today. Where there's just not really anything good happening in the church at large in the city of Sardis. And God, it's difficult to see past the appearances because so often we only look at the outside, even when it comes to ourselves. And so God, we just pray that individually and as a church, you revealed us the places where we're lacking, the places that we're trying to hide that don't honor and glorify you, the places that don't meet the standard that you're setting for us. God, the places where we're not living and acting and speaking and thinking as a church should. And give us a desire to be complete in our works. To love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love our neighbors as ourselves and do the work of a gospel-centered, gospel-driven church. Until the day we get to lay down these works and take up eternity. And so, Father, we just ask and we pray that you speak to us through your word. And we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The Apostle Paul had a pretty incredible reputation. Before his conversion to Christ, he was a powerhouse in the religious world. He was a Pharisee and an incredible teacher. He was someone who was looked up to, someone who was respected, and someone who was also, by his own admission, a passionate persecutor of the Christian church. He made it his mission to go anywhere and everywhere that he could to stamp out Christianity, even overseeing the martyrdom of Christians, the death of Christians, watching and even holding the coats of the people who took out these actions on the church of Jesus. And it was a point of pride for him. In fact, writing to the church at Galatia, he said, you know my reputation of this ardent, of this passionate persecutor of the church. And it was so bad that even after his conversion to Christ, even after he was going into towns and cities preaching about the good news of Jesus, when he was on his way to Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem said, you know what? I don't really trust that guy. I know who he's supposed to be. We've heard of all the things that he's done. There's no way that he's a disciple of Jesus now. We can't let him come here or else he's going to kill us. And it took someone else stepping in and speaking on his behalf for the Christians to even begin to trust him. Reputations are really powerful things, whether they're earned or not, 
Whether you change or whether you haven't, whether it's based on gossip, rumor, and lie, or whether it's based on who you actually are, reputations are powerful. But the reality is I don't think I have to tell you that. At some point in time in each and every one of our lives, something has come up about our reputation that's either caused us great pride or great discomfort. And sometimes both of those things result in fear. Because there's been a couple times in my life where my reputation has been a little bit of a thing. So one time was when Stephanie and I first started dating. And there was a very, we'll say they were well-meaning, well-intentioned, probably not, group of her friends from youth group and, and from school that were really concerned that Stephanie dating Chris Dills was leading her on a pathway to a life that could not go in the right direction. And so they all met in secret and in quiet and literally prayed for her because they were worried about her. And she finds out a couple weeks later this is going on because that's how concerned they were because of my reputation. On the other side of that, when I started college, I started off as a music major. And I went in and you had to go in and, and audition for the music program. I had a pretty good audition. I was a very new guitar player. I knew literally two songs and I played one of them, but I brought another instrument and played and apparently it went over really well. And so it was great. And so three weeks in to my music theory, my intro to music theory class, I turned in my very first test and the professor calls me near her, which is never a good thing. Like with my history, again, anytime a teacher was like, come here, I was like, oh no. And so I walk up to her and she gets really close and whispers in my ear, I've heard about you. I'm so glad that you're here. And I immediately thought, uh-oh, <laughs> because also I wasn't that good at anything. And at that point, as I was turning in that first test, I thought there's no way I'm going to keep being a music major past this semester. And so she was on a road to great disappointment. But reputations have a lot of power in the way that people see us and the way that people think about us and even in the way that people respond to us. And the church at Sardis had a pretty incredible reputation. Jesus writes this letter to him. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. And that's the kind of reputation that a church should want. We should want a reputation of a church that is alive. Nobody wants to be a dead church. And maybe you've said this about a church. Maybe you've been a part of a church where this has been said about the congregation where somebody, you mention the name of the church and the first thought is, ugh, that church, ugh, they're dead. There's no passion there. There's no excitement there. They're not doing anything. They're mean and gossipy and hypocritical. That is a dead church. They don't have any characteristics that show that they're a church other than the kind of building that they meet in and maybe the clothes they wear to go there. But we should want that reputation of being alive. A church that's passionate about Jesus, a church that's passionate about the gospel, that loves one another, that's out actively serving in the community. We should desire that that would be the kind of thing that people say about our church because reputation matters. In fact, in Acts chapter two, when we see this picture of the first church that was meeting together after Peter preaches the very first resurrection sermon and people are calling themselves followers of Christ and they're meeting together, in the list of their characteristics, things that we should emulate on a regular basis. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to prayer. They were fellowshipping together, they were spending time together. They enjoyed each other's company. They were breaking bread together, not just in eating meals, but in the sacraments like communion and baptism. They were taking care of each other, 
If somebody had needs, they were willing to sell their property so they could take care of others. They were out in the community working and serving and loving people and sharing the gospel. And one of the final things said about them before we see God adding to their number is that they were in good standing with those around them. They had a good reputation in the community. And so this should be really important for us. And if this verse stopped right here, we would think, oh, wow, good job, Sardis. You guys have a reputation for being alive. But there's a problem. And there's a little bit of a contrasting parallel here between Sardis and the church at Smyrna. Remember, if you were here a few weeks ago when we looked at the church at Smyrna, this was a church that was overlooked, that was oppressed, a group of Christians that really had no influence, no power. They felt like they had nothing on their own. And so Jesus writes this letter to them and says, hey, I know all that you're going through and I know that you're poor, but you're rich. And Jesus says, what's, what's on the outside? How people see you and how people understand you, that's not the reality of who you are. And you may feel like you have no power. You may feel like you have no benefit to the world or the city around you, but I'm telling you, because you're holding fast to the gospel, you are rich beyond what you could know, and I'm going to accomplish great things in and through you. Your reputation doesn't match what's on the inside, and that's a good thing. But to the church at Sardis, he says, I know your works, and I know you have this reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And for Sardis, their reality was much worse than their reputation. See, all the people around had this opinion of Sardis and who they were. That's a church that's alive and kicking. Look at all the stuff to do. Look at how they're impacting everyone inside of the church building. Look at the excitement that they have when they come together. This is a church that really seems to get what it means to be a church. Everyone around them was looking at them saying, that's what a church should be. But Jesus sees differently. And we've seen some of this as we've seen Christ revealing himself and some of these characteristics of who he is in these letters to the churches. And last week in the letter to Thyatira, Christ was described as the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. That Jesus sees through the garbage, that he burns through all the exterior and he sees to the heart. We saw earlier that he's the one who has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, the word of God dividing through all of the junk and revealing what's actually there. Here, in this letter, he's introduced as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We see that Jesus is the one that walks among the seven lampstands. It's this picture of Christ walking through the churches. And this imagery of the seven spirits of God is, is figurative language to describe the Holy Spirit who is present in all of the churches. And so Christ sees his churches for who they really are. Jesus knows his churches for who they really are. And even though Sardis was trying to run and hide, even though Sardis was trying to camouflage themselves under the appearance of a healthy living church, Jesus looks at them, he says, nope, I know your works, I know who you really are, and your reality is that you are dead. This isn't the first time that Jesus has seen through the junk and unveiled the truth. Jesus finds himself in a confrontation with some religious leaders in the Gospels, scribes and Pharisees. These are the people who kept the law. They're the ones who were leading God's people in worship. 
They were the ones who were literally taking the word of God and copying it letter for letter for distribution. They knew God's word. They knew what it meant to follow God. And they gave all the appearances that they were doing that. And so everyone around them thought, oh man, I wish I could be like the scribes and Pharisees, but they're so far beyond me. But Jesus looks at me and says, you know what you are? You're like a bowl. And you look really good and clean on the outside, but inside it's filled with filth. And you better clean the inside first and then the whole bowl could be clean because just a clean outside is not a clean bowl. Then he goes further. He says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. It's beautiful on the outside, clean and pristine, but on the inside it's filled with death and decay and rotting. He says, you may look the part of someone who is religious. You may look the part of someone who follows God, but because of where your heart is, you're filled with nothing but death and decay. And we need to be careful here because as I have said multiple times, Christianity is both religion and relationship. It's easy to say Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, but it's not true. The reality is our religious devotion to God matters. And the fact that we come together and participate in spiritual disciplines, the fact that we come together and sing songs together and confess things together and even come to the table, when we do this in just a moment, this is an act of worship and an act of religious devotion. And over and over again, multiple times in the New Testament, we see that religion is something, the Christian faith, the Christian practice of our religion is something that God has given us to help us grow in our knowledge of who he is in our relationships with one another and to become more and more like Christ. But empty religion, religious practice and actions just for the sake of appearance is deadly. I remember I was watching a documentary once and they were focusing on these athletes. And it seemed like most of them were endurance athletes of some type. They were long distance runners, cyclists, people that appeared to be in the absolute top level of physical condition, could do things that I could never even imagine doing. And they looked the part. They looked like endurance runners. They looked like long distance cyclists. They had the physique that you would expect. And they were doing all the things that they should be doing to make sure they were getting there. They were working out. They were training constantly. They were participating in races. They were doing what they could do to make sure that they were ready for race day. But as the doctors evaluated them, they found out that there were some things in their life, some other practices they had that were equally as strong as these healthy things leading them towards being elite athletes that were causing these people who looked to be completely and totally healthy to be pre-diabetic, which was crazy because that's something that you normally hear about people that, that are dealing with all kinds of other things that maybe have healthy, unhealthy eating practices or unhealthy workout practices or have some kind of sickness or illness that leads them into that. But these were perfectly healthy people who seemed to be doing most everything right, but because of other choices they were making were causing internal damage that they couldn't see. And if it hadn't been caught, could have been deadly. As churches, we have the ability to be that. We can really clean up the outside. And sometimes we talk about individuals this way, but churches can be this too. We can make sure that we're doing all the things that we need to do to look like a church and sound like a church and act like a church. And we can absolutely fake it. We can fake excitement when we come together. 
We can set the mood so that every time we come together, we can raise our hands, we can sing, we can laugh, we can seem to really enjoy the worship, we can jump up and down, but all inside, not having any ounce of passion for Christ, for one another, or for worship itself. We can come together and act like we love each other. And we've talked before, there is maybe no more dangerous reputation to have than being a nice church. Because you can fake nice. You can smile at someone and say, hey, how are you? And welcome somebody in and give somebody a muffin on their way in and just send everybody in. And we can all sit here nicely and comfortably together and then leave and have absolutely no concern or care for one another. What you can't fake is a deep Christ-like affection that gives you a burden for other people to laugh when others laugh and mourn when others mourn and make people feel the love of Christ every time we're together. But my goodness, we can fake nice and we can fake polite. We can fake service. We can find a lot of things to do as a church to spin our wheels, where we look like we're active, where we look like we're doing things that churches should do inside and outside in the community, but they're things that have no lasting impact on the lives of those around us. They're not doing anything to help those that are oppressed and broken, those who are impoverished and in need, not doing anything to care about the eternity of those around us by pouring the gospel in word and action. We can do all these things to be really busy and look like a healthy living church and all the while be dead. And as we saw in Ephesus, we can even fake good theology. We can say the right things and claim to believe the right things, but if those things don't move us to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, they're empty and dead. We can do all these things, and all the while we could be dying inside. And I think out of all the things that we've seen take place in these letters to the churches, this is the most dire warning for evangelical churches in the South in America, because it's easy to look like church here. And people understand what church should look like. And as long as we check those boxes for what people expect church to be, we can be a church that has a reputation for being alive, but is actually dead. And this is why there's such importance in those spiritual disciplines of reading scripture, of praying, of worshiping together. This is why we need to constantly be stoking the passion inside of our lives and inside of others, constantly drawing out of one another a love and a passion for Jesus and a passion for the world around us. This is why we have to live in constant, genuine community for good, better, or worse, for good, bad, and ugly, whatever phrase, I can't think of them right now, whatever those phrases are, the good and the bad and all the messy junk that happens in between in human relationships, we have to say no matter what it costs, I am going to live and love the way that Christ has called me to do that. And we have to be people of constant internal and external evaluation. We need to learn to see ourselves with Jesus' eyes and not only desire a reputation of life, but a reality of life. And make sure that no matter what's being said about our church, that we know when Jesus looks at us, he sees that our works are complete in him because we're pursuing him with passion and all that we can. But he continues on, because we have this church that's dead, but all hope isn't lost. Because in verse two, he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and what is about to die. For I found your works not complete in the sight of my God. And so we have this church that's dead, but there's still hope because death doesn't scare Jesus. 
Because already, as we sang that Christ is risen, that sentiment is echoed all the way through the book of Revelation. When we see Jesus as the lamb who was slain and yet who lives victoriously. As we see Jesus as the firstborn of the dead, as we see Jesus as the one who died and came back to life, Jesus isn't afraid of death. And he says, you're a church that's dead and you're a church that there's something in you dying and there's still hope, but you better act quickly. He says, you need to wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. There's clearly a timeline all of this. And this is a picture of what happens when churches stop paying attention to who we're called to be. Because this is a church that is going into atrophy, just like a muscle that you don't use for a long time. I remember when I was a kid, I broke my pinky in a really weird place, and so I had a cast on for about six weeks or something. And I was already a very small, kind of frail child, just a little guy, not a lot of upper body strength. And so I had this cast on for six weeks, and I go into the doctor's office when it's time to get it off, and they take that weird little saw thing, which is a really hard thing to get used to because like, it cuts this, but it's not going to cut me. I really don't believe you. And so I'm assuming they're about to cut my arm off. And so they cut up the cast and they cut it off and he pulls it off. And I'm so excited. I can't wait to finally have the use of my arm back. He cuts the cast off and my wrist just goes. <laughs> and I tried to pick it up and nothing happened. Because again, I still, I think my wrists are the actual size of my five-year-old daughters, even now to this day. And so there wasn't a whole lot going on there, and I just couldn't move it, and it was horrifying. But what had happened is after six weeks of not using it, what little bitty muscles were actually there had gotten even smaller, and now no longer had the ability to even pick up my tiny little hand. But when we stop using muscles, they stop growing. In fact, they start to shrink. They start to atrophy. They start to dwindle down to nothing. In the church at Sardis, they're not using their spiritual muscles. And Jesus says, all of this is rotting and decaying and dying inside of you. You need to wake up and you need to strengthen this. If you don't make a change ASAP, you're never going to get this back. He says, I know your works and they are lacking. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're not being who you're supposed to be. I remember last week we talked about this pendulum of church life where we swing from one end to the other. With Ephesus, they were so focused on sound doctrine that they had stopped loving other people. For the church of Thyatira, they were so focused on loving other people that they had completely ignored the fact that they should live righteous and holy lives. And so we swing our pendulum in all these different directions. So we're devoted to prayer, but maybe we're not devoted to action. And we're devoted to loving others, and so maybe we're lack with our theology. And we just swing back and forth. And every time we do that, something is not being worked. And something is not being strengthened. And that's happening at the church at Sardis. And Jesus says, you've got to fix this. But he gives them a rehabilitation plan. Jesus gives them some spiritual therapy to help strengthen up. And this is what he tells them to do. First, he says, wake up. Just wake up. This is a call to alertness. Now, I remember in elementary school when they would do fire safety training. And one of the things that they would always say is make sure that you have smoke detectors and that they work because if there's a fire in your house and nobody's awake, then you'll die in the fire. And I don't think I slept for three days after they said that. And we had smoke detectors, but still I thought, what if I go to sleep and then the smoke comes and I don't smell it. And we have cats, not dogs, because there were all these stories about dogs waking people up and cats are fairly indifferent. And again, the one has asthma and so he was not coming upstairs. And so it was really gonna be a problem if our house caught on fire. And so I was horrified. But that's a fair thing to be scared of. 
Because being asleep when danger approaches is not a good place to be. And so Jesus says, wake up. You need to recognize what's going on. You need to pay attention that these things are true about you. You need to quit listening to what people are saying and start recognizing what's really going on. But not only are they called to wake up, but he says, wake up and strengthen what's dying. It can't be enough just to be aware of what's going on. It's not enough to just recognize that there's a problem, but you need to do something about it. Start moving these muscles, start completing these works, start living and serving the way that you're called to live and serve. And then he calls them to remember, to remember the gospel. He says, remember then what you have received and heard. Remember who Jesus is. Remember how he saved you. Remember what it cost him to call you a church. Remember who he's called you to be, that you're not here just to exist or to build a reputation, but you are here to make an impact, temporary and eternal, for the cause of Christ. Pay attention to who you're called to be. But not only remember it, he says, and keep it. Because again, it's this balance of awareness and action. Remember the gospel and act on the gospel. And then he tells them to repent. And we've seen that word so many times in these letters to the churches. And I think a lot of times we think about repentance as a very individual thing, but repentance is something an entire church can do as well. And we have to get to the point where as we're evaluating who we are and how we're working for Christ, we need to be willing to recognize that anything short of total commitment to Christ is a need to repent. I need to say, you know what? We're not who we're supposed to be. We've been lacking in this area. We've been lacking in this area. And God, not only are we going to make this better, but God, we're sorry. Because you gave everything so that we could be who you've called us to be. And so as a church, we're going to repent of this. We're going to confess this to you. And we're going to do what's necessary to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Because if not, with the church at Sardis... Jesus says, if you don't repent, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Now this is scary in its own right, but for Sardis, this, this meant something because the city of Sardis was a fortified city. It was really well taken care of. And so because of that, on two separate occasions in the history of this city, there were watchmen who got a little lazy and they weren't paying attention. And enemy forces came in when they weren't expecting it because the watchmen had lowered their guard and sacked the city twice in the history of Sardis. And Jesus says, your watchmen are asleep in this church at Sardis. You're not paying attention to what's going on. And so if you don't wake up, if you don't realize what's happening, I'm going to come to you like a thief and I'm going to come against you and you're not even going to know what happened. And so here we see a desperate need to always be awake, to always be diagnosing, to always be acting, and above all, always be repenting so that the indictment on Sardis will never be true of us. But as always, it's not everyone here. And in verse 4, Jesus says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. There are still a few of you who have done what you're supposed to do. But he draws this contrast between the two because he says they're not the ones who have soiled their garments. And that's such a sad picture of what the church at Sardis has done. Jesus said, I gave you clean clothes. 
I gave everything to save you and make you into a church. And what have you done with that? You've taken that robe of righteousness. You've taken that goodness of salvation and you've thrown it in the dirt. But not all of you. There are some of you who have been walking with me. There are some of you who haven't let your guard down. There are some of you who know what it means to follow after me wholly and fully. And Jesus says, for those people, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I love that language. Because when you look at Genesis chapter 3, in the fall in the garden, one of the most disturbing things about that passage is in Genesis chapter 2, these people walked with God in the cool of the day. They had an intimate relationship with God. They walked with the creator of the universe. And then because of their sin, not only did they try to hide themselves away from him, but then they were cast out of his presence. And the entire Old Testament is one big narrative of God's people walking near God, but not walking with God. And now Jesus says, no, to those who follow after me, who have been saved by my grace and mercy and who are living as they're called, they are going to walk with me and this Eden relationship will be restored where you can walk with the creator of the universe and you're going to do so in white. This picture of purity. And what I love here is these, these aren't perfect people in the life of the church. These people in Sardis still would have made mistakes. They still would have messed up. They still would have sinned and fallen short, but they were striving after Christ. And so they weren't perfect, but they were made pure and able to walk with Jesus because of the good news of the gospel. But they were on a pathway leading to perfection. Because he says there to the one who conquers, these people who have been made worthy by God, once they finish the end of their race, he says, they'll be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Jesus says, one day, these people who walk with me to the end, who persevere to the end, you're gonna exchange all the dirtiness of your robes and your rags for a robe of white and you are gonna be with me forever and I will never take your name out of the book of life. It's this promise of an eternity with Christ made holy and worthy from the inside out. And then what I think is the most powerful and profound thing that he says here, he says, I will confess his name before my father and before my angels. We talked about a couple weeks ago, the power in the name of Jesus that there is unbelievable power when we think the name of Christ, when we speak the name of Christ, when we sing the name of Christ, when we pray the name of Christ. All through the New Testament, we are told over and over and over again that there is power in the name of Jesus. And now the one whose name has the power to save from the inside out, the one whose name has the power to equip the churches to go out and to do works far beyond our imagination, the one whose name can bring healing, the one whose name can give power, the one whose name buys us into eternity, the one who has that kind of powerful name is looking at the people that he is saved by his actions saying, one day when you finish this race, it is going to bring me joy to say your name to the Father. It's going to be my pleasure to proclaim your name to the entire hosts of heaven. Think about how amazing that is. You may be here saying, my name doesn't have a good reputation. 
or my name doesn't have much meaning or much value or much power. There's not a whole lot about me that has any seemingly worth, any seeming worth at all. And yet Jesus says, no, no, no. Not only have you been made worthy, but one day the God of all creation, the one whom all things were made through and by and for is going to stand at the right hand of the father in the host of all of heaven and say, this one belongs to me. And he's going to say your name. Man, that's beautiful. And this is the reward to just those who are faithful. Not those who do the most. Not those who look the part as best they can, but just those who are faithful in remembering the gospel and keeping it and living like people who have been saved. And so we need to learn to exchange a reputation of life for the reality of life. To to desperately want our church, for people to say Redeeming Grace Community Church, that church is alive. Those people love Jesus. Those people love each other. Those people love everybody inside and outside the church, and they're doing incredible things. We want people to say those things about us because they're true, because our church is founded on the good news of the gospel. What do we sing that is a firm foundation, that we can stand on the foundation of the gospel and be motivated to love, be motivated to action, be motivated to endure whatever comes in our lives so that one day Jesus will will change our clothes and give us those white garments because he's made us worthy through his own blood and through his own death and resurrection. And he'll call us into his kingdom and he'll say our names. So let's make that priority, our priority today and each and every day that God allows us to be a church here in this community. Let's pray. Father God, We just ask that you forgive us for the places where we're lacking. Because no matter what, there's always going to be something that we could do better, something that we've neglected. And so God, I pray that you reveal those things to us. That you wake us up. And that you call us to strengthen the parts of us that need to be strengthened. And God, the places where we're doing well, the places where we are serving you and honoring you to our fullness, God, help us to do that even more. God, we just pray that when people talk about Redeeming Grace Community Church, this will be a place known to be a place of life. But that not an ounce of that would be fake or based on reputation alone, but that we would be a church constantly evaluating who we are and what we do and making sure that our thoughts, words, and actions, that our works and our love would always reflect who you've called us to be. So as we prepare to come to the table, strengthen us, help us to repent where we need to repent, confess where we need to confess, and just find grace and peace in the meal that you've given us. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus.